Like many of you, I'm curious about many topics and what better way to learn than to speak directly with the people who have the answers or insights that you're looking for. My name is Costa, welcome to Founder Views. That's what this channel is all about. You're gonna hear me pick the brains of thought leaders, CEOs, politicians, and business experts about subjects that I'm personally interested in or working on at any given time. From economics, business, real estate investing, Bitcoin, politics, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hey, I'm practicing strong hands for for this dip here. (laughs) I like that. I got Brad and Jimmy on the podcast today. can you guys just quickly introduce yourselves very quick before we get into it? Yeah, so yes. I guess I'll go first. Go ahead, Jimmy. Or you go first. Uh, hey, my name is Jimmy. Um, I would like to I like to call myself the prettiest boy in Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> I'm a relatively new maximalist. I was converted. The, the cult got to me uh, in, in 2020. Uh, yeah, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur uh, and Bitcoin investor. Awesome, awesome. I also am a lifelong entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, many, many failed startups, uh, a couple successful ones, nothing, nothing really exited of anything of note. But then back in 2011, uh, when I was first getting interested in like, you know, protecting my money that I was making from my entrepreneurship endeavors, I, I found out about gold. And then I found out about Bitcoin. And so I started mining Bitcoin in my basement in 2011. Uh, been into Bitcoin ever since. Um, and pretty much now at this point over the last five years, Bitcoin's been my full-time thing. I kind of uh, retired as a serial entrepreneur. Now I do venture capital investing and other entrepreneurs. And I just kind of educate on Bitcoin and buy more. I love it. I love it. There's a lot of similarities between us. I think this is going to be a, a good chat. So um, I've been in Bitcoin probably since like 2017. Um, I'm not a very technical person. I do understand high level what Bitcoin is, what it does, why I believe it could be extremely valuable and useful to everyone. Uh, and I think there's a very big market of people like myself who understand high level why Bitcoin's valuable. I personally know a lot of these people in my net- network uh, in that category who are, who are also invested in Bitcoin in some capacity. So I'm hoping to talk to these people today specifically. So there's a lot of chaos. I want to start with with the market right now. There's a lot going on right now in the markets. We're walking through what I think are uncharted waters in a lot of ways. And it seems like everyone is either trying to you know, stay afloat, hang on to a life raft, catch a life raft, and hopefully escape on the other side in a better position than, than when they started. So how are you guys viewing what's happening right now in the market, uh, like with Bitcoin crypto space specifically? Jimmy, you want to take that one? So I, I've, I've been lucky to be surrounded by, you know, Bitcoin maximalists that have been through this before. And so, and so you know, one thing about, you know, when you get into this, this community investors is you, you come across guys that have experienced downturn after downturn after downturn. Being a Bitcoin investor, you're sort of going through a hazing price, uh, a hazing process. You know, it's like 
I've been prepared during the bull run. Everyone was talking about the 80%, 90% drawdowns that they've experienced in 2017, you know, 20, 2015, and et cetera. And so there's there's a lot of, you know, we, we always prepare for the, these moments. Of course, uh, like this downturn is, 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 is special because it's like, you know, it's brought on by Fed policy, what the government, U.S. government is doing. Like all asset prices are being affected. Um, I think it's, it's rather interesting um, makes me a bit more bullish about uh, about bitcoin that you know bitcoin bitcoin is sort of is is sort of tracking or correlated to nasdaq right so it sort of lets me know that adoption has reached a level that like look if i'm risk if i'm liquidating assets or that, that are that are you know risk on assets that are you know uh tech companies that bitcoin is also affected so that means to me that a lot of investors that are invested in tech are also invested in Bitcoin, and so they're liquidating both all of those positions at the same time. That's a signal to me. Um, that that's a positive signal to me. Uh, but yeah, like I saw, like everyone talks about this. Everyone talks about the volatility. I was prepared for the volatility. I'm still up, right? Um, you know, I I was blessed, also blessed enough to invest in 2020, right? And so you know, I'm still up. But whether I'm up or down, it's irrelevant because you know. As, as, as they always say, when in doubt, zoom out, and you sort of see Bitcoin's trajectory no, no matter what. In a three to five year uh, horizon, you know, you, you'll be okay, right? If, if you think in terms of three to five years uh, when you're investing in Bitcoin rather than year to year. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think the, there's definitely a lot of panic out there. Um, for me, I, I'm the same as you. Like I'm, I'm also up. Luckily, I got in earlier. But I, I, I see the, this as very long term. Uh, I, I don't trade Bitcoin in any way. So, but at the same time, like my entire portfolio asset allocation is not in Bitcoin. It's, it's an amount for me personally. That's um, if I lost it all tomorrow, like I'd be totally fine, type of deal. So. Um, that, that's how sort of I'm positioned for now. But I, I, for me, like it's actually been the allocation has been trickling up uh, ever so slightly. Um, Brad, what's your sort of overall take on what's happening right now? Uh, well, look, I was expecting Bitcoin to drop to 20K and maybe even a little below 20K since China banned Bitcoin last year. And uh, watching the 2020 COVID response, I was actually like expecting us to go into some sort of great recession or something back in 2020 after uh even before covid so like be, in 2019 actually when when the when the basel accords which are the the set of regulations that are supposed to apply to other global banks when the basel accord they they ramped up after the 2008 crisis they ramped up so that they called this the stress test it was the rules that the banks had to abide by in order to be um, fully safe and able to handle systemic issues and exogenous events like like a COVID shock. So when when they got into 100% full effect, which was 2019, the shit started to hit the fan because the Federal Reserve started to say that, well, they, they were not buying any more treasuries. They weren't doing any more quantitative easing. They started trying to raise interest rates and banks started to freeze up from lending to each other and charging higher and higher rates. So we've been just under this this false regime of like low interest rates and easy access to credit for the last 10 years and it's inflated all asset bubbles it's inflated the housing bubble it's inflated 
stocks, um, SaaS company valuations were going crazy. You had the whole SPAC thing happening. Um, so Bitcoin is benefiting in a way from this same access to easy money, this money printing. When the when the government responded to um, the shock of the COVID policy with just printing tons of money and keeping interest rates low and, the, and then doing QE with the Fed, it did cause people to just go go ham on like whatever they were whatever they were uh, <laughs> speculating on. There was people that were buying Pokemon cards. I had a buddy that quit his job to start buying hockey cards in, in Halifax. He started a hockey card store and he was just buying up yard sales full of hockey cards and he ended up making like a hundred K flipping hockey cards for the year. I mean, people were buying like whiskeys and sneakers. Like I got so many buddies that are like the goat, you know, the shoe goat, they call themselves, where they're just <laughs> buying up all these different types of shoes and flipping them for yeah. thousands of dollars. So in that environment where everything is all of a sudden worth something because of the massive glut of dollars and easy access to credit that's in the system, yeah, you're going to get like inflation of bubbles. And so we saw that to a massive degree with the SPACs, with the SaaS company valuations, with cryptos like NFTs, altcoins, DeFi, all this stuff. Bitcoin is totally separate from all that stuff in crypto. And it's best for, for people to try to understand, like a lot of people that came in 2021 didn't understand what they were buying. Um, and a lot of people in 2021 that, that were in the crypto industry were treating Bitcoin as their base collateral, just like in the, in the traditional system, the U.S. Treasury is the base collateral. So hedge funds in the, in the, in the financial system use U.S. Treasuries through the repo markets and the interbank lending markets as their base collateral to be able to go off on the risk curve and make money with all their different instruments. They borrow against their treasuries and their mortgage-backed securities. Those are the tier one assets. Well, when the bubble's inflating, everybody wants to make money. So they go and they, they go into like the more exogenous risky stuff and they try to make a spread on that. Well, that's what happened in crypto. I mean, you got these giant funds like Three Arrows Capital, which grew from half a billion to like 20 billion based on using Bitcoin as the base collateral. Like the Bitcoin is like the US treasury in the crypto world, if you want to look at it like that. So it's the most liquid, it's the deepest, most trusted uh, base collateral in crypto. And so of course, in an environment where everything's inflating and people are going off on the risk curve and they're trying to make as much money as they possibly can because they see the conditions are here. It's like a, it's like a free for all. You can just throw a dart and make money. Well, they're going to go and do all this risky stuff. This, and they rebuilt the exact same financial system that we're trying to get away with, with Bitcoin. They rebuilt it on a blockchain called a DeFi. And they, they did the same toxic stuff that the guys, in, the guys in the traditional system did to bring down everything in 2008. They started doing synthetic, uncollateralized loans and having these chains of rehypothecation, basically chains of like relending things over and over and over and back and forth to each other. So in a system like that, where we saw what happens in um, 1998, when Russia defaulted on their debt, this big hedge fund called LTCM, they went bankrupt. And that was a risk to the rest of Wall Street, even though it was just this one fund, LTCM was billions of dollars of uh, exposure to Russia's debt. It, you know, it took them down. But because other banks had exposure to them, it almost took all the other banks down. So it was like Bear Stearns and these other big banks 
1998, they, they were exposed to the failure of this LTCM hedge fund because of this one event, Russia defaulting on the debt. Well, they didn't do a bailout then, but then in 2008, it was like <laughs> the risk was still in the system and everybody was doing that with the mortgage, the, you know, the kind of like subprime mortgages and other synthetic stuff. And when the, when the liquidity freezes up and people start to think like, oh, somebody's not solvent here. I'm going to pull in all my base collateral. I'm going to pull in all my debt. I'm going to call in all my loans. Well, then you see who's who's swimming naked when the tide comes yeah. back in, right? And yeah. you have a central bank that can bail out the traditional markets. That's what QE was. That's the Fed. The, the Fed works with the Treasury. The Treasury orders uh, stimulus and, you know, the CARES cares act and all that stuff well in in crypto you don't have a central bank that can bail out all this stuff from failing so right now we're seeing bitcoin get absolutely tranced because there's a bunch of these protocols that were pretty much acting like the big banks of wall street and they had gotten significant sized treasuries and this was all supported by tier one vcs like andreessen horowitz and uh, trading firms like Jump Capital, who who are like massive outside of crypto, they're massive like leaders in their respective industries. And for some reason, all these folks decided that it was a good idea to to rebuild all the toxic nonsense that was <laughs> responsible for bringing down the economy in 2008, and do it all on a blockchain and call it innovation. And really, it was just it was just. There's nothing really valuable there in the token schemes and these unsecured lending schemes and all these Ponzi-nomic lockups. And really, we're seeing it just all get flushed out. And unfortunately, Bitcoin is is kind of a a, a, um, a base collateral for these guys. So they're selling it off because they're getting margin called. And you had Celsius, which is a huge, basically like uh, insolvent bank in crypto which had to sell off a whole bunch. They got liquidated a, um, a bunch of Bitcoin. You had Three Arrows Capital, which was like the, one of the biggest tier one crypto hedge funds, which had gotten liquidated as well. And then obviously Terra Luna, which was a massive um, wildcat bank almost. They're, they had like 30,000, 40,000 Bitcoin, I think, and they had to sell it all. So you just have this massive sell pressure from all these over leveraged big institutions. And it all stems back from easy money policies and this idea mm -hmm. that growth is <laughs> growth is sustainable when you can just continually increase the money supply and keep interest rates low that'll encourage healthy growth i mean obviously we see that everything is kind of blowing up the only thing that hasn't blown up right now is this is the real estate market and like you're in Toronto, right? So I imagine you're probably like, what are you thinking about the real estate market in Toronto? You must be kind of like, <laughs> like you're you're like Wiley Coyote off the cliff, and you're like, don't look down. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, the sort of yeah, the real estate market here is uh, it's extremely unstable, unsettled right now. It's like the first time ever where I have no idea what my house is worth, like by a big spread. Um, cause like there's, yeah, it just trying to figure itself out right now. Um, as with seems like every other asset. So you, you, you talked about a lot there, which I want to, uh, unpack a little bit. Um, so first, so uh, again, I, I want to speak to the people who are not so technical. They understand things on a high level, smart people. But, uh, so one thing I want to ask, 
you know, Bitcoin obviously being a, a scarce asset and knowing that a lot of people invested in Bitcoin have have a similar view on the world and, and the economy and the system as a whole, I think. You would assume that it would trade almost like a hedge against currencies and markets, but instead it's trading like in direct correlation. Uh, why is that? Jimmy, you want to go? So you sort of can't, I mean, you can't divorce Bitcoin from the rest of society. And I mean, in, in fact, I think if Bitcoin existed in a vacuum, it'd be highly problematic. Right. I mean, if, if you put us all in a situation where we need cash, we need liquid cash, we're going to liquidate anything we can um, that that's that's, you know, that's that's basically in our portfolio, whatever we could afford to liquidate that we could, you know, liquidate relatively easy, easily. And Bitcoin is just one of those assets. Right. And so so I think, like I said, I'm pretty bullish on Bitcoin because it, it means that Bitcoin is becoming more and more a part of our lives that Bitcoin is also affected um, by, by, you know, the federal government, uh, by monetary policy. This is a good thing for Bitcoin. Um, and I think moving forward, it's going to be more and more correlated with the rest of the, the, macro, the macro environment, macroeconomic environment. So, so yeah, I, 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 still, I still do think it's a hedge, right? I think, I think Bitcoin is the best savings technology we have. It's the best savings account we have. Right. It's, it's yeah. the it's the it's the only place where you could put money right now and be sure that it will probably your, your your wealth will grow three or five years from now. Right. Yeah. It's the and I'm sure of it. And it's not absolute. I can't talk in absolutes. But, you know, compared to every other opportunity uh, or, or place where you could put money, nothing's been outperforming Bitcoin at all as a store yeah. of value. Yeah, I think I think the best uh, way to look at this, at this inflation thing is. It's kind of like Jimmy said earlier, if you look at Bitcoin over long term time frames, I think I like to think of it as like 10 years. If somebody's getting into Bitcoin now, they got to think about 10 years. And Bitcoin is for somebody that's putting, say, 5% of their net worth in Bitcoin for 10 years, that acts as a hedge against inflation of the money supply. Um, Bitcoin is not a a short-term hedge against CPI inflation rising. Like what we're seeing right now with CPI inflation rising is kind of like a shock to the system. A lot of people weren't expecting this. A lot of Bitcoiners were. And, you know, a lot of us probably did think that Bitcoin would do better in this environment. But we've got so many negative things happening all at once that's just pushing the price of everything down. And unfortunately, you know, like Jimmy said, because the market participants that are in Bitcoin since 2017 have been more like institutions, high net worth individuals, hedge funds, things like that. Obviously, we've got millions of more regular average people that are buying Bitcoin. They're starting to realize it's a good way to opt out of a, a corrupt money system or it's just a way to like um, hedge against their own currency, say in like Nigeria or Lebanon or these countries all around the world where their currencies are way more inflationary than than ours. You've got a lot of people that are principled kind of like anti-central um, bank, libertarian, like you got tons of individuals like that coming into Bitcoin. But since 2017, you'd have a lot of these traditional participants who also have 
401ks and uh, RRSPs and they've got them in index funds and they've been buying tech stocks and like they have a portfolio that is traditionally constructed so that when they see everything going down, they just kind of lump Bitcoin as an investment. Like a lot of people came in in this last cycle in 2021 and they, they allocated to Bitcoin and then they went off onto the risk cliff in crypto and they started buying DeFi coins and Ethereum. And some people were buying NFTs. Like I've got a lot of high net worth friends, some of them in SaaS, in the SaaS industry. And I was advising them to just like, just buy and hold Bitcoin. Think about it for 10 years. Don't get caught up in all this crypto stuff because you're an entrepreneur and you're a tech entrepreneur. You're probably going to get like shiny object syndrome. You're like, oh yeah, but the blockchain can do so much more stuff. You're just, you're just not thinking about this right. You know, the NFTs is, is such a, an innovative concept that's going to be used for identity and it's going to be used for ticketing. It's going to be used for events. You know, you're just a Bitcoin maxi. I'm like, no, nah, I've been in this freaking space for 10 years. Well, actually 11 years now. I've been through all the ups and downs. I've invested in probably hundreds of different crypto projects. I'm friends with all the founders. I understand what this game is. And the game is just a token in the end is a token boiler room. And these these bubbles are just ways for pre-mined coins to get dumped on other people that don't understand what they're buying. And there is really no long-term value for DeFi coins and DAO coins and NFTs and anything like that. It's the same as penny stocks. I mean, it's just like all through history, there's these periods of boom bust and FOMO bubbles where people don't understand what they're buying, but it's just they get caught up in the speculative fever of it all. And and then they create narratives that they use to justify their investments so that they don't think of themselves as a speculator. They think of themselves as a, a an adopter of something like an early technology adopter or a tech investor or whatever. But really, all, all we've seen is majority of these DeFi coins, crypto joke coins, NFTs, all that stuff. It, it did well in a bubble. It's down significantly now. And many of us were warning that this was really just a way to have these insiders and venture capitalists that pre-mine these, these garbage investments really to dump on people that are coming in to buy up the, the, the FOMO. And that's what happened. All this stuff's down like negative 90 to 99%. A lot of these blue chip projects are down like 99%. And like yeah. blue chip is just Kool-Aid. It's, it's actually, it's actually, Separate. What you got to do, I would advise most people, especially people in the SaaS industry that are coming into this space and like buying some Bitcoin and then going out and buying other stuff, separate the technology narratives from the coins because they are completely separate. I will say that there is some interesting technology that's being built in the DeFi space, but you don't need tokens for any of that stuff. The tokens are all bolted on after the fact. And you got to really, you got to really start with a foundation of trying to understand why Bitcoin matters, why Bitcoin was invented in the first place. And if you can get yourself to that point where you've got a hundred hours of learning about Bitcoin, you listen to like Preston Pish's podcast, um, you read some or listen to even listen to some audio books about, about Bitcoin specifically, and get yourself down to a really foundational understanding of why bitcoin is valuable what makes decentralization such a key component of what makes bitcoin the asset value valuable and how bitcoin fits in 
compared to other asset classes. When you can get yourself to that point where you can clearly in your mind separate Bitcoin from everything else, well, then I'd say it's okay to start going and looking at all the other stuff because then you'll, we won't be drinking the Kool-Aid because otherwise if you just yeah. buy Bitcoin because, you know, Michael Saylor has Bitcoin and you want to have some Bitcoin too, or Raul Paul from Real Vision liked Bitcoin and now he's telling you to go buy Luna coin or some other fintech innovation or whatever, and you just buy Bitcoin and you're holding that, but you don't know why you're holding it. Well, then most likely you're going to go buy some other crap, get wrecked on that and then sell your Bitcoin because you're like, ah, oh, crypto's not what I thought it was. It's not a hedge against inflation. Because if you just come mm -hmm. in with this surface understanding, which a lot of people did that, oh, well, Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. And then you see the CPI inflation numbers rise and Bitcoin goes down. You're like, oh, I guess it's a failed experiment. It's not a hedge against inflation. I better just go buy some bonds or I better just get, get back into cash. But yeah, man, just like Bitcoin in the short term is not a hedge against CPI inflation rising because CPI inflation is kind of a shock to everybody and people are panicking because co it coincides with the drop of the stock market and the announcement by the fed that they're going to start doing quantitative tightening and all this stuff bitcoin over the long term is a hedge against monetary inflation like the de the debasement of the monetary supply is what bitcoin is a long-term hedge against because if you hold your money yeah. in dollars over 10 years you we can we can all guarantee that those if you have a million dollars Say you exited your company and you made 10 million or something like that, and you take that 10 million and you put it in the bank account, you know that your purchasing power in 10 years of $10 million is going to go down because they're, they're continually increasing the monetary supply. That's what Bitcoin is a hedge against from, for, for people. It's a hedge against the, the devaluation and the debasement of the money supply. Yeah, very well said. I'm, I'm in total 100% in alignment there. A uh, couple of things I want to ask. So, um, so why is Elon Musk pumping like Dogecoin? Like, what's that all about? Like, do you have I, any Dogecoin? I don't, I, don't, I don't think he's pumping Dogecoin. I think he's trolling. You think, think it's just a big troll, huh? I, I mean, he, that's what he does on Twitter, right? I mean, he's not pumping Dogecoin at all. If he was serious about it, Tesla would have put it on its on his balance sheet. They bought Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I heard about the law, the potential lawsuit that he's facing right now because of his tweets about Dogecoin. But I'm sure, you know, he, he wouldn't be ignorant enough to tweet about Dogecoin while holding a significant position because then he'd be in really big trouble with the SEC, right? Uh, but, yeah, I, I just, I truly, you know, to, to talk about the, the, the tokens, the other tokens, right? I, I always... Uh, especially the utility tokens, right? Well, Dogecoin is, is it's a clear meme and the founders of Dogecoin, you know, they're pretty, uh, that's why I like, that's why I like Dogecoin, not as an investment, but because the founders behind Dogecoin was, was clear that, hey, this is a meme. This is not real money. This is dumb. This is just like for fun. Fine, whatever. You want to play around with Dogecoin? <laughs> play around with Dogecoin because it's for fun. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, they're not promising to retire you. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. whereas, you know, a lot of projects, right, the, the, the Ethereum's and the Cardano's and et cetera, you know, people tend to use very confusing language when they talk about these other tokens, right? Because, you know, when you're talking about a utility token, right, it, when you go and purchase a utility token, you're purchasing that company's product. So like 
your Ethereum, your they produce ETH, right? You need to buy ETH to use their service, right? So you bought the product in order to use their service. And the thing with these products is we're speculating with these products as if they represent equity or a piece of the, the organization itself. It's weird. The equivalent of that is, imagine you believe that ExxonMobil, the gas company, is going to have a, an amazing quarter, and you go to the gas station and fill up a can of gas, and you presume when their quarterly earnings come out that the can of gas is not worth more money. It's asinine. Yeah. But that's what we're doing. Yeah. Right? And, and, and sort of, you know, utility tokens, if it truly has, if it is truly a utility token, it's, it ought to be able to trend downward in value over time, right? Because, you know, as a technology company, you must end up becoming cheaper, right? And more accessible to operate at scale, right? Mm-hmm. That's just how technology functions. And, and I see the more that Ethereum is used or, or Cardano is used, the token goes up in price becomes less accessible. In fact, yeah. when you see what the popular drops that they have, like NFT drops on Ethereum, the technology breaks. Can't operate at scale. There, yeah. there are tons of limitations um, to these. So it's like a, it's a lot of sort of confusion when we're talking about these tokens, whether buying these tokens mean that you have exposure to the project or whether these projects are actually built to do what they say they're, 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 they're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when I say when I say he's pumping Dogecoin, like I'm the type of person where I always like to see uh, try and look see the best in someone um, rather than than the other end. I like to to see the good in people, and uh, just obviously I don't know Elon Musk, but just seeing what he does and uh, what he's trying to do for for I guess humanity, this big vision in in, in like with with people and in the environment and in space and all this, like you would think that he has at least the awareness that if he's trolling, like he's probably screwing a lot of people because they're trusting him for his word. And, and that, uh, like, I, I bet you a ton of people are buying Dogecoin just because he tweeted about it. I, I think, I, I, I think, think that I, he actually I, is Jimmy. <clears throat> I think he actually is serious. I think he's just like not thinking clearly about this. It's like, there's a bunch of things that t- that catch his attention, and he and he starts to tweet about it. Like, you remember that cave thing? Remember when he, when the when the boys were stuck in the cave, the Thai the Thai boys were stuck in the cave, and he started like developing a a submarine to be able to get them out. And then he and then there was this, this guy that was was kind of like criticizing him, and he called him a pedophile, and started like he actually hired a research team, like a private investigator, to go and like try to dig up some shit on this guy and. And like, see if he had a checkered past. Well, I mean, Elon Musk ended up getting sued for that and for defamation. He lost the suit, as far as I understand, because he, you know, sometimes he can be a total asshole. And it's it was proven in that scenario that he was just completely egotistical and it just consumed him. So I think he is autistically consumed by Dogecoin at this point as part of his personality and his ego. And it, and it all goes back to the... Uh, the, the point that like in the environment where everything can go up when there's access to easy money and people's brains are broken, whether it's because it's residual undiagnosed COVID and their brains are swollen. So they're off taking risk when they shouldn't be. Whatever the reason is that in 2021, we decided to value JPEGs as the same price of a home or a joke coin as like the same value as Bitcoin or 
whatever. Uh, whatever the reason is, Elon Musk doesn't think deeply about this. And you can tell by looking at his tweet likes and who he's interacting with on Twitter. He likes tweets that are just totally nonsense about like scaling. Like he's he's like in like a 2016 level understanding of what Bitcoin is and what cryptocurrency is because he likes tweets that are just total nonsense. He's he, he and he says things like, yeah, Dogecoin can scale. Um, it's just like Bitcoin and we'll scale it on Robinhood and Coinbase. And like that totally shows that he has no depth of knowledge of the understanding of why you want to have censorship resistance. If he thinks that you can just increase the block size of Dogecoin by 100 times to allow for more scaling and then do the rest of the scaling on the exchanges and then still retain the properties of the Lightning Network scaling Bitcoin, it just shows he doesn't really deeply think about it. And it is more of a joke to him, but it's part of his identity now. It's part of his ego. He's he's egotistically not going to admit that he was wrong until like he'd get sued, just like in the Thai boy case where he was like saying this guy was a pedophile, <laughs> and, like right up until the point where he was taken to court about it. So I do think he's serious. I think he's not thinking deeply about it. He's just get, loving the attention he gets from these Dogecoin people. He still he still interacts with the, the co-founder of, of uh, Dogecoin constantly on Twitter, Billy2Mac or whatever. And this guy is a total moron. This this dude that created Dogecoin is a total moron. Like he just copy pasted the code. He doesn't understand anything. You watch, you look at his video, his tweets about Bitcoin on, on Twitter. He's just a total, total moron. He doesn't understand what he's doing. It is a big joke. But as this market falls apart and, you know, the central banks start to raise interest rates and all this stuff, you see people will less and less be caring about these nonsense projects and NFTs and stuff like that because we have this monetary privilege that's starting to, to erode here in the West. I like to compare, and actually just the, the, the other point about it is, thank God that like Elon's tweets don't matter anymore because before, when at the very beginning of this bubble, Elon actually tweeting about Dogecoin gave permission like, you know, the richest man, one of the most followed people in the world tweeting about Dogecoin gave permission to all the tier, all the other tier one celebrity influencers to go do the same thing. They all started doing it. They started promoting their own coins. They started creating their own coins. They started launching their own NFT scams. And like to Elon's credit, at least he's critical of NFTs, Web3, DeFi, like he always tweets these memes about like, you know, is Web3 in the room with you right now? And like, you know, making fun of NFTs and stuff. So to his point, he hasn't gotten completely into the whole crypto grift. The only thing that he's promoted is Bitcoin and Dogecoin. And Dogecoin, because it was a joke to him, it's funny. He gets a lot of attention from it. But unfortunately, you're right. Like he has massively infect, influenced a lot of people to to like get wrecked and believe the narrative that he's going to actually make Dogecoin the currency of Mars or something like that. And then you get Mark Cuban piling on, like adding more network effects and getting people wrecked. And then, like I said, you get all these other celebrity influencers going down like the line from uh, Gene Simmons to Logan Paul to like everybody really getting involved and promoting crap to their audiences and yeah. pumping and dumping these crazy coins. And now two years later, a year and a half later, these same people are doing it still, but it does no effect because the market has already right. priced, the market has already gone through its complete bubble and pop. And now these celebrities are just like building up th themselves a lot of legal trouble, I think, by still promoting this crap. 
And, you know, unfortunately, it would have been great if Elon had have learned the lesson from the last year and a half of promoting Dogecoin to people and seeing it get that, go down 95% or whatever it has. But he, just the other day, again, he tweeted, I still support Doge. I'm going to still yeah. support Doge. So, I mean, like, he learned no lessons, but, hey, the price of Dogecoin didn't even move, so at least he has no impact yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so, I, I feel like most, like, regular mainstream crypto people in crypto um are in like both bitcoin and ethereum as like the main like stable coins like do you consider ethereum as that or do you consider one of these altcoins that are not going to have any value at the end of the day i like jimmy's answer about like the way that you should really value these alternative coins is based on what they're supposed to do and like ethereum keeps changing its narrative when the ICO happened, it was a uh, it was smart contracts and uh, immutable code and uh, you know immutability. Um, when the DAO hack happened, they had to kind of roll back the transaction that 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 the attacker you know they exploited the DAO contract, which was actually in in a system of smart contracts. The DAO hack wasn't really a hack at all. It was actually just a an execution of immutable smart contract code. And obviously they didn't like having 30% of the Ethereum supply being like drained from the contract by um, an adverse actor. So they rolled it back and then they broke the immutability promise. And then they came up with like minimum, well, I call it minimum effective decentralization. They don't call it that because they like to come up with other buzzwords, but Ethereum's narrative keeps changing. And like, it's, it's like, there's the ICO bubble of 2017 caused massive investment from VCs and crypto uh, whales to go into these ICO coins. And the, the idea was that you were disrupting venture capital and that there, the, um, the early VCs into supporting all this crap came up with the MV equals PQ ratio and the FAT protocol thesis to justify investing in these utility coins. Well, the SEC came out and said, actually, these are illegal securities. And they started taking action against some of these projects. That put a super chill, like it was like an ice chill on the market for um, Ethereum as this platform to disrupt venture capital because it wasn't actually, it was just a bunch of centralized people raising money and using a blockchain instead of using a database. And they were still they were still treated as securities. Well, that saw the price of Ethereum go from fourteen hundred at the high down to like eighty bucks. It had a negative ninety five percent absolute routing, as people realized that this massive bubble that built up all this value in the ETH project was based off of a flawed analysis that utility coins give the value. And a lot of people became Bitcoin maximalists in that in that bubble pop. We had people like Michael Saylor. Um, Corey Clipson from Swan Bitcoin, Robert Breedlove. Um, there's so many people that were that came in and like was like looking at this this the uh the system. Maybe they participated in, in the ICO bubble, maybe they invested in some ICOs. Maybe in the in the case of Corey from Swan, he was actually running a crypto hedge fund and he was like seeing all this crap, surveying the landscape, and be, realized like this is actually trash. Uh, this is a bunch of like insider pump and dumps. It's a bunch of nonsense. I'm actually going to go build Bitcoin. Bitcoin is where the, the real like value is for humanity. So then he created Swan Bitcoin, and now he's one of the biggest network effects for Bitcoin, creating awesome content and um, hiring tons of 
uh, people that create Bitcoin education and really trying to delineate for people what is the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum and all this other stuff. So we learned all these lessons in that last bubble pop. <laughs> and then you had all these awesome, like, valuable nodes for Bitcoin get minted because they saw all the carnage. They're surveilling the the apocalyptic landscape of all these worthless tokens down 99% or to zero. But then the whole thing reinflated with what we described earlier because of the money, the, the monetary policies, the whole thing reinflated. We forgot all those lessons. And now you got the same situation where ETH pumped to $4,800. And now it's on its way down again to negative 90% because the whole thing pumped this time based on not the ICO narrative, but the DeFi and the NFT narrative. And both of those things, turns out, were also complete trash. NFTs was just a b digital beanie babies. And, you know, it was it was a nonsense speculative bubble. And DeFi turned out that that was actually just a bunch of centralized companies that were creating protocols on top of Ethereum to be able to dump bags of pre-mined tokens on you. And really, the utility narratives didn't matter there again. So they they had to change the narrative from bit, uh, the utility token thing because when people actually started building DeFi on Ethereum in 2019, 2020, and it reinflated the speculative fervor of, of Ethereum, then it actually broke Ethereum, like Jimmy said. The the gas fees went insane. And they used to make fun of Bitcoin saying, oh, well, it should it's absurd that Bitcoin should be more than 25 cents a transaction. The internet of money should be no more than five cents a transaction blah, blah, blah. And Vitalik said that anything above like a, a 25 cent uh, transaction is a liveliness failure. And so what happened? Well, Bit Bitcoiners were right. We all said, don't build this stuff on the base layer because it's not scalable. And it's going to ruin decentralization. It's going to ruin the, the user experience of people trying to use the thing. So Jimmy was absolutely right when he said it becomes like a, a net negative for the use case of the utility of, of this thing as a smart contract platform when the fees are so high that you can't even afford to use it. Well, what did they do? They took the stock to flow ratio, which was popularized by plan B to bring a lot of institutional attention to Bitcoin using that stock to flow meme, which a lot of us, by the way, thought was nonsense. It was just a meme for rich people. The same way that the Citadel is a meme for like plebs, like we're all going to have a Citadel if you hold Bitcoin like that. The stock to flow ratio was the same type of meme just for rich people and institutions. So that was working for a little while to bring a lot of attention into Bitcoin. So the Ethereum people said, well, we're going to actually take that stock to flow ratio thing. We're going to we're going to take the high fees of Ethereum and we're going to turn that around and market it as if it's a good thing change the monetary policy of Ethereum with this EIP-1559 thing, which actually changed the, the, the core monetary properties of the network. They changed it so that it would burn the fees. And that was like marketed as if that was the solution to the problem of high fees, because now the high fees are going to be pumpamentals for the Ethereum price. Now the high fees are actually going to pump the price of ETH because it's going to be burnt. And somehow that was marketed as if it was a good thing because they started with this ultrasound money meme saying that if Bitcoin is sound money, well, now we can fork Ethereum's monetary properties and call it ultrasound money. And really what they didn't realize was that for people that really do the work and try to understand the difference between Bitcoin and the other stuff, they actually realized that when you can change the monetary properties of the system that easily, it's not actually decentralized.
And that's the core yeah. reason why Bitcoin is more valuable than any of these other things, because nobody's going to change the monetary policy. The long-term credible scarcity guarantees of Bitcoin, that's what gives it separation from everything else. And, you know, yeah. Dogecoin and Dogecoin Ethereum, and Ethereum, they're a litmus test. So if people fail that litmus test and they buy Bitcoin and ETH or Bitcoin and Doge, I mean, they just haven't done the work and they're going to get wrecked. Yeah, I, I sort of want to chime in here on ETH because I don't know, like subject, like Ethereum just irks me because, you know, it's, it's very rare that you, you have really honest conversations with ETH maxis uh, uh, about that protocol. At the end of the day, we have an organization that like, has to go like they're heading towards their third try. You have ETH Classic, right, which is the original ETH, got hacked. We're currently using their second try, right? Which now they're trying to transition to proof of stake because th it, like this ETH doesn't actually work. It's not scalable. It's it's too expensive for a lot of people to use, and it breaks if too many people are using it. So now they're we're heading to their third try. I mean, the, the staking of our current ETH is really the, just them burning tokens and giving us a brand new token, right? It, it's, it's nonsense at mm -hmm. the end of the day. And, and, you know, in regards to NFTs, especially the reason why PFPs got so popular, they're ICOs. They're all like, like there's a reason why, there, there's a logic behind a lot of the big projects. The, the, the difference between one NFT and the artwork and another NFT is so negligible. They just change a color, maybe change a little thing about the NFT, but one from one to another, the difference is negligible. So they, they can take advantage of the group economics, meaning when crypto punks get popular, it doesn't matter which crypto punk that you buy, just buy a crypto punk because they all look the same. As long as you call it an artwork, you, you don't have the SEC knocking on your door. It's yeah. it. It's essentially right in the same way that if you buy a project, right? One token is no different from another token. It's the same dynamic. It's the same group of economics and it all works the same. And so NFTs got popular, especially the PFPs got really popular for that same exact reason. It was a way to, to do an ICO without, you know, the SEC on your back because you called yeah. it art. <laughs> so far. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like how you guys both uh, explained uh, Ethereum and what it's all about. Um, Appreciate that. I, I'm not sure how uh, open or transparent you both are on like your actual involvement in Bitcoin. Like, for example, do you just buy and, and hold? Are you involved, invested in in companies that use Bitcoin? Do you mine Bitcoin? Like, what are you what are you guys like doing with Bitcoin? Go ahead, Jimmy. Uh, so, yeah, I'm an investor. Um, also, I uh, spent a lot of time on Clubhouse either learning about Bitcoin or teaching uh, new investors about not just my experience uh, in regards to, you know, what Bitcoin has done for me. Uh, because, you know, investing in Bitcoin, you know, sort of changed, like, sort of changed my life in recent, like, so when COVID hit, I have a digital marketing company. And when COVID hit, uh, a lot, I lost, like, a lot of my clients. A lot of my clients were in the music industry. And so concerts weren't happen, happening. That entire industry was basically wiped out. Um, and then I invested in crypto, first uh, started DeFi, and then converted all of my gains to Bitcoin after meeting people like Brad, American Hoddle, Bitcoin Tina, John Fakuri, and all of these other guys from Bitcoin Clubhouse. Um, 
And, you know, the growth in Bitcoin, man, making that investment, like, put me in a position where, you know, I was able to start and acquire a bunch of companies. I, I bought a couple of businesses down in Kentucky. Um, I have a trucking company here in the Northeast. Uh, and, you know, through my experience, I, I, I educate a lot of other people about, you know, what I've gone through thus far, what I've learned from a gentleman like Brad, um, and et cetera. Uh, I, I definitely, uh, also, uh, just a side note, I do have the most successful Bitcoin NFT drop in Bitcoin history. Really? <laughs> yes, I'm the part of the Rare Pepe project. Yes, I, I negotiated the, the first partnership, the fake rares, uh, Ghostface Killer Wu-Tang Clan. I negotiated a deal where he was selling the rights to his music um, as an NFT, uh, partnered up with the fake Rare Pepe project, uh, and which was wildly wow. successful. It was the first time the Bitcoin blockchain was slowed down by a bunch of people trying to buy a Bitcoin NFT. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. So, yeah. Very cool. So myself, uh, yeah, Brad. Uh, yeah, I I invest. I'm like a a Bitcoin saver. So I, I save in Bitcoin. Most of my net worth is in Bitcoin, and I educate people. Obviously, like I I don't have a super successful podcast. More so, like I go on other people's podcasts and just hang out in Clubhouse all day and learn and talk and think <laughs> through Bitcoin. Ten years later, eleven years later, I'm still learning about Bitcoin. Um, I, I, I do invest in Bitcoin companies. I've probably got 20 or so Bitcoin companies that I've invested in, um, Bitcoin only companies. So, you know, people like village, which is like a Bitcoin for kids app where you can start a trust account and save Bitcoin in your kid's name. Um, all the way to like, uh, just things that are technology for Bitcoin, like zero knowledge channels on the lightning network or, um, a lot of education stuff. I invest in companies like in Africa and other other countries where they're trying to educate people about Bitcoin. Um, Lightning Network to me is real important. The peer-to-peer -peer cash use case of Bitcoin. That's why I got into Bitcoin in the first place. It was both digital gold and peer-to-peer -peer cash back then. And it still is today. Um, so I, I do... I do dabble quite a bit with the uh, crypto and DeFi and all that because I have a lot of friends from the early days that that became like fund managers and DeFi founders and things like that. So, I mean, a lot of people that got into Bitcoin in the early days, they were entrepreneurs that saw Bitcoin as a, you know, digital gold. And then, you know, they're still entrepreneurs. They, they think, oh, well, blockchain technology looks like I can... I can build a derivatives exchange on the blockchain. So I'm going to go do that. You can't do that on Bitcoin yet. So I'm going to go do that and make my own blockchain. I mean, so I have tons of people that kind of like were part of the ICO bubble. Um, so I still keep in contact with them. That's why I know so much about all the other chains and, you know, the use cases and stuff. And I actually worked for Alphabet in 2017-18. Not Alphabet, the Google company, but Alphabet. It was a like a big crypto uh, hedge fund and I was on the investment committee doing some Bitcoin stuff for them and then I joined their ICO committee and like I helped them do due diligence on like 70 ICOs in the last bubble and like that's kind of where I saw the sausage getting made and realized the kind of like backroom insider deals and how everybody's just doing it to pump and dump their tokens and shit I just I just realized like oh this is just Wall Street but they're doing it on a blockchain it's Wolf of Wolf of Block Street whatever you want to say <laughs> So in Bitcoin now, like that's why I'm I'm a Bitcoin only guy, like Bitcoin in the streets, shitcoins in the sheets. So like I'll go and like <laughs> mess around with the shitcoin stuff, with like the that. NFT stuff. 
I invest in companies like I'm a, I'm a part owner of NFT.com because I like to stay mm. plugged into this stuff. And if I ever make any profits off of any of this crypto bubble nonsense, then I take it back and I invest it in Bitcoin companies because there's not enough capital allocation going to Bitcoiners trying to build Bitcoin businesses because it's not as much FOMO because you don't have like A16Z in there pumping the bags of all these projects. So I do my best to try to create some FOMO in Bitcoin. And yeah, like Jimmy said, I was I was collecting rare Pepe's on Bitcoin back in like 2016 or whatever, because all this stuff came from Bitcoin, like the Tether stablecoin. That was on Bitcoin first. The NFTs created by Bitcoiners on Bitcoin, on the counterparty. All this stuff has been done. The first decentralized exchange, the first DEX, it was counterparty on Bitcoin. So, I mean, like Bitcoin has these use cases, but we all realized early on that you don't want to build this stuff on the base layer of the blockchain. And it may sound like because I'm so critical of Ethereum and DeFi and certain crypto stuff that I don't think any of that stuff's valuable at all. But that's why I keep saying, like, separate the technology from the coins, because I do think that NFTs are here to stay. I think that the concept of digital collectibles, game items, you know, uh, digital art, that's here to stay. That's like a Pandora's box thing. You can't put that back in the box. It's going to be done. Everybody's going to have NFTs. There's going to be trillions of NFTs. But the fact that like, because of this crazy bubble that we saw and people like Gary Vee and Logan Paul and all these influencers coming in and shilling them and because of the ETH whales driving the auction prices up to these astronomical levels and going and working with Christie's and stuff to get all this attention for uh, marketing for the Ethereum NFT bubble, it, it created this situation where I almost want to be against NFTs and where all Bitcoiners are like against NFTs because it created this thing where it was like nonsense. It was just like the, the dumbest bubble that humans have ever speculated on, probably worse than tulip bulbs. You're actually speculating on JPEGs. So they created this these conditions where it like made it tough to want to actually support the concept of NFTs because they made it net negative. Like look at how badly the, the normies react to like a game company adding NFTs. You get like 500,000 people like, complaining about it on Twitter and, and YouTube when when like a big company announces they want to do NFTs in their video games. So, I mean, unfortunately, there's been a lot of damage done to the concept of digital items because of the speculative like greed, bub greed filled bubble that that was exploiting all the communities and users. And it's going to take a little while for that to get repaired. But regardless, I don't think Ethereum's going to zero. I don't think the Ethereum network is shutting down or anything like that. I think people are going to continue to use this stuff. I just think as the market figures out what the ETH token is and that it's actually a, an inferior version of BTC and it's actually supposed to be used as a utility coin for the network. And as the market figures that out, as Bitcoin outperforms over the next decade, you know, Bitcoin can become a global reserve asset worth $20 trillion in the next decade. You know, you see a million dollar Bitcoin, that's a 20 trillion market cap because Bitcoin does have the long-term credible scarcity. It's more decentralized. It has the Lindy effect for the, for the asset itself. And you don't need to have, a lot of people like justify their investment thesis of Ethereum and Cardano and Solana and all this stuff by saying like, oh, well, Bitcoin's boring. It can't do anything other than money. Uh, money's like the biggest use case on the planet. Like all it has to do is money. All the other stuff is bonus. 
The other stuff is bonus, mm-hmm. and I'm investing in a lot of entrepreneurs building other stuff. There's Bitcoin DeFi, Bitcoin NFTs, Bitcoin lending. There's all kinds of stuff happening in Bitcoin, but the key difference is there's, there's nobody doing tokens. The tokens are the problem, and that's why I'm like super excited by Jack Dorsey's company, Square. Uh, well, I guess they're rebranded to what? Uh, Blocks. And okay. they've got Spiral, which is the formerly Square Crypto. They got the TB Dex company. So they have the Square merchants and the Cash app, which have tens of millions of customers all over the world and merchants. And they're building on the Lightning Network. They're building decentralized identity, uh, decentralized web nodes. So, you know, you hear all about this stuff about Web3 and like, you know, Ethereum can do DAOs and Bitcoin can't do all this stuff. It's nonsense. You just don't hear about it as much because there's nobody out there shilling the ar- the token armies, shilling the coins for all this stuff. But Bitcoiners are building it. it. There's a significant investment going into like what Jack Dorsey and them are calling Web5, I think is a joke, but it's the decentralized web. Like Web3 mm-hmm. is not the evolution of the internet. Web3 is just a new marketing scheme for pre-mined tokens that Andreessen Horowitz wants to dump on your head. Web5 is what Jack Dorsey and all these other principal Bitcoiners are doing. It's like, you don't need a blockchain to do a decentralized social networking application. You just need to have peer-to-peer networking, peer-to-peer communication, webs of trust, decentralized web nodes. And then you can do it with the Bitcoin Lightning Network integrated into all that stuff. You, you basically have the evolution of the internet where it is more peer-to-peer, it is more decentralized, and sats are the only currency that you really need. And if you want to throw stable coins on there until we get to hyper-Bitcoinization, you can do that. And people are going to have NFTs in this Web Web 5 stuff. People are going to do their own coins, I'm sure. But the the thing about Bitcoiners building this stuff is that we're never going to be trying to promote these tokens and pump them to these asinine valuations because we are all about like Bitcoin as the money. And that's yeah. really all we focus on. Like the other stuff is kind of just having fun, messing around. There is some valid use case of like artists being able to monetize their audience on a blockchain. Sure. But like when you do like, you know, crypto punks and board ape yacht club stuff, which is just like clip art securities, <laughs> like ICOs, basically, like Jimmy was saying, that's not what this is. This, it's not useful for the world. It's not helpful. It's actually just yeah. a big distraction. And uh, I'm just pumped for 2025 because even though like we're in a bear market right now, more and more people are starting to understand like Bitcoin is valuable. Bitcoin is important. And I do think that over the next year or so, as you see the rest of the macro market conditions continue to get worse, like this war in Ukraine and Russia is, doesn't seem like it's going to be stopping anytime soon. It's a big problem for energy prices. If you've been following like what's going on with China and what's going on globally with the food supply shortages and the supply chain disruptions, it's going to be a rough summer and a rough fall for people all over the world there's a massive shortage of meat and grains and you know there's a cereal arsonist at large in the united states a hundred food plants and meat plants are uh burning down like there's so many inflationary pressures on the horizon and we've got a condition with the housing market here in canada and all over the world too where 70 percent of the people that don't own homes feel disillusioned like they'll never be able to own a home again that's the kind of conditions that you don't want to have as a person in charge because that leads to a populist uprising. Like they're going to grab their pitchforks. If they, if people yeah. get disillusioned enough in the currency and in, and in the lifestyle of living in the country, you see what's happening in Sri Lanka. They're burning down houses of politicians. This 
that's not it's not immune to to us in the West. So we are continually losing our monetary privilege here. For the last ten years, we've had monetary privilege in the West. So people are like just focusing on their lives. That money pretty much worked for us for the last ten years. So the early adopters of Bitcoin saw the benefit of like hedging against the devaluation of the currency because they were paying attention. But everybody else was just like, yeah, money's fine. Like I'm just saving money. But now we're starting to see like we're starting to experience what billions of people all over the world have been experiencing for the last 50 years, which is high inflation, extreme devaluation, lots of like supply chain shortages. Like (laughs) it's not going to be so, so groovy here. And the last thing I'll say on this point is, you know, as we continue in that paradigm of, of losing our monetary privilege and um, people start to worry a little bit more about things they should be worried about, like food sovereignty and just taking care of themselves and they're, you know, working hard and um, long-term thinking rather than just like, oh, what's on Netflix and I'm going to go buy a JPEG or flip a sneaker. Like you look at Nigeria for, I look at Nigeria for sentiment, Google search traffic, places like Nigeria, El Salvador, Lebanon. And you search, like if you, if you go to the Google search and you plug in Bitcoin, Dogecoin, NFTs, crypto, GameStop, right? You look at things that over here where we have monetary privilege, you look at things that like spike up and cause massive, you know, FOMO, like GameStop, Dogecoin, whatever. In Nigeria for the last five years, it's just been a steady, slow uptick of Bitcoin. This crypto, Dogecoin, NFTs, it barely blips. Where here it's like massive spikes and FOMO of interest because people have this monetary privilege here. But in a place like Nigeria, there's 200 million people and they actually need Bitcoin. Because they don't have the monetary privilege to be able to go and speculate on NFTs. Like they need to protect their value. And Bitcoin to them is a useful, like important tool. So I think we're going to see more and more of that. I don't think crypto's dying. I think crypto is just going to turn into like venture capital. It's just going to be like a tech, uh, a, a, a different type of technology for venture capital, um, financial products and stuff like that. But, you know, Bitcoin can be a 20 trillion market cap as a global reserve asset a million dollars a coin and ethereum can be 500 bucks so i mean ethereum can still have like there can still be a quadrillion dollars worth of notional value settled on layer one blockchains like solana and ethereum and stuff like that like they can have a total addressable market of a quadrillion dollars which is all the derivatives markets in the world right if that all gets put on these layer one blockchains that does not mean that the price of these coins are going to shoot up along with the values of the valuation of the things that are getting settled on there. So you could see like U.S. Treasuries get settled on an Ethereum layer two or something like that. And that doesn't mean Ethereum's going to $10,000. Bitcoin, in a world where Bitcoin exists, people will come to realize that like Bitcoin is a superior monetary asset. And, you know, it's not like the NASDAQ stock is worth quadrillion or a billion or hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. just because all the stocks trade on the nasdaq so i think that people will figure that out as time goes by and um i don't know if if crypto becomes a one to two to five trillion dollar market cap i could see that happening but in that world like bitcoin's a 20 trillion market cap so i just say people should be prepared to see one million dollar bitcoin five hundred dollar ethereum all right. I, I'm totally with that. I, I get, I think we're living through um, kind of like an economic shift in the world, um, similar to other shifts throughout history. And 
uh, I, I see Bitcoin as that that thing um, that's going to be there. And uh, going back though, I want to um, from a Canadian perspective, you're in Canada as am I. I noticed on your Twitter profile you you have a few companies that you're invested in. Um, any any particular companies that you would you want to quickly talk about to for the average person to drive adoption, get people more, um, you know, interested, invested, buying Bitcoin, like any any companies that can maybe help with that or um, in Canada or in, yeah, in, in general, I guess. Well, there is there is one that I'm pretty excited about that's going to that's going to be coming out this year. It's called Peach. And it's going to be like basically Tinder for Bitcoin. So it's going to mm-hmm. be like peer-to-peer Bitcoin uh, trading. So in the early days, we had local Bitcoins and everybody was using that to find local people that would just be able to get you into Bitcoin. But, you know, we don't have the version of that for the modern like smartphone and and uh, average person that's used to doing like consumer apps. So, I mean, that I think is going to be awesome. Anything that's like literally in Nigeria, they have these like peer-to-peer sort of like meets and all this stuff. It's the the network, the peer-to-peer network strength in, in these other countries is way better than here. Here we like to all yeah. use exchanges. So I like to invest in anything that's, that's uh, strengthening the peer-to-peer stuff because that actually is like the local the local networks and, and like the resiliency to, you know, the resiliency against like a blanket ban of Bitcoin. Cause in these, in these countries where they actually banned Bitcoin or they take a real adversarial stance to Bitcoin, Bitcoin doesn't die. It just dries underground and people develop peer to peer networks and WhatsApp groups and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm interested in that. Also, um, shake is doing a real good job in Canada of sponsoring meetups I'm trying to encourage the founder of ShakePay to get rid of ETH because that's really hard for me to recommend people use ShakePay when they have ETH on there. The founder is a Bitcoin maximalist or whatever, but like he's just like, you know, we don't want to cause problems for users. We want to take ETH off, but we don't want to cause tax problems or whatever by forcing users to sell. So whatever. They're trying to figure out a way to be able to remove ETH from that because eventually Cash App's coming to Canada and Cash App is doing amazing work in Canada or in the United States and in, and in Africa. And I'm super bullish, India, Africa, Latin America, like all these places that have this super strengthening uh, Bitcoin network effects. That's what's going to be the most impactful for Bitcoin, I think. And some people disagree with me that, you know, we need more billionaires in. And like those, the billionaires and the like sovereign wealth funds, those are the people that are going to actually drive Bitcoin to a million dollars of Bitcoin. I don't like that. I I, I want to see all the like global poor get Bitcoin before the one percent or the point one percent. So I'm investing in all these use cases and educators and stuff um, that try to help strengthen the network effects of education to get the global poor into Bitcoin, even if they got like a freaking hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin on their own on their app. That's yeah. we get like a billion people <laughs> that like want to save in Bitcoin, even 150 to 100 bucks. I'd much rather see that happen. That helps the Gini coefficient of Bitcoin become stronger than the US yeah, dollar. For sure. And then yeah. Geyser Fund is another one I really love. So geyser.fund, it's a it's a way to raise money for your Bitcoin project. So if you're going to create a Bitcoin music album or if you're going to make a Bitcoin book or if you've got a Bitcoin podcast or 
even if you're not even in Bitcoin, if you just want to raise money, it's basically Kickstarter for the globe because Kickstarter has a whole bunch of restrictions of different places where you can't use it. And with Bitcoin, it unlocks crowdfunding globally. So Geyser Fund, I'm super pumped about. It's a helping Bitcoin culture, helping support Bitcoiners that are doing cool shit. So, I mean, there's tons of com- tons of projects, but those are the ones that I'm super interested in. Education, peer-to-peer networks, and fundraising for like supporting Bitcoin culture and the use case of Bitcoin as peer-to-peer cash. Yeah, I, I want to ask about a couple of things there. So actually first, you know, from, from the Canadian perspective, um, how are you dealing with the tax component of it all? Like, you know, for those who might not know, in Canada, Bitcoin yeah. is still treated like a commodity. So every transaction or withdrawal to fiat is considered either a capital gain or loss, depending on your cost base. So like, what are you doing in, in, with that perspective? So the best, like, how are you treating that? This is the best. The best advice for people in Canada for tax is... Hold Bitcoin as a long-term investment, and then you qualify for capital gains tax, which is like 23.5% or something like that. So if you're trying to become a crypto trader and like trade Bitcoin and like be an active trader, I mean, there's a likelihood chance that you're going to be classified as that's income. So you don't want to kind of mess up your, your cap gains rate because obviously you want to have low taxes on you want to be able to look at it as like capital gains taxes so i think that's why the best advice that i give everybody is hold bitcoin as a savings account be a bitcoin saver just continually buy you know dollar cost average your way in and hold it for a long term time frame and then you know you can look at that as your retirement account because we're probably not going to have ccp or whatever when when we get to retirement age the way things are going so look at bitcoin as your retirement account and then don't try to get cute with it. Don't try to become a crypto trader. But if you do, you should kind of like consult a, an accountant beforehand because you don't want to mess up your personal tax treatment of Bitcoin as long-term capital gains by, you know, doing a bunch of shitcoin trading and then like, you know, not not under a company. If you do like, if you do some trading under a company, you just separate your personal ta- your personal tax profile from your trading profile. So like I have a company that I will do some like investing of altcoin stuff in and then I I you know that happens in the company. So that's how that's how a couple of my friends in Canada do it. They kind of have like they treat it like a business and then they if they have any profits they just pay, you know, business income tax through the through the through the company. Um and just get an accountant to help you out with that yeah. because the best, the but I would just say don't even bother with that. <laughs> like the best thing is just to just buy and hold long term Bitcoin, buy and, hold, yeah. and then it's yeah. and then it's uh, and then it's just income. Uh, it's just a capital gains tax. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on uh, what you touched on it, Brad. Like just the the regulation side of it and, and the whole idea that. Um, governments and regulatory bodies view Bitcoin as this direct threat to their own monetary system and just doing things to, to combat it and stop its you know, penetration and all that. So how, how serious of a threat is that to Bitcoin? And like, how do you see that playing out? Well, I'd like to address something that you've mentioned. Uh, I think, well, Brad, I think you spoke about Nigeria. So the thing about Nigeria, especially in regards to peer-to-peer, uh, I lived there uh, for about two and a half, three years. I had a company 
based out of Lagos, uh, was on the island, Lagos Island. And peer-to-peer makes so much sense there because the only way that you could access U.S. dollar with, with really good rates um, was basically a money exchanger that operates in the street. They would have like a big wad of U.S. dollars and a big wad of Naira. And you come up with your Naira and you get your U.S. dollars straight from him. And you get the black market rate, which is way better than the rate that you would get in the, at the banks. And the bank's rate were artificially sort of manipulated by the politicians. And so the way Nigeria works, which I think it works like that around uh, in a lot of these kind of environments, these corrupt environments, is to officially get something uh, is expensive so that they can control the black market. It's essentially how they pay themselves. So I think on the back end in environments like Nigeria, Nigerian politicians ban Bitcoin so that they can make money off of Bitcoin, mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> so like you'd have to, they'd have to be the guys that'll get you your stable coins, which is also big. It's a stable coins are a huge business, and Bitcoin is a huge business. Uh, and these the guys on the street can't access it in volume. And when I when I say volume, they're doing volume over there. You know, the average Nigerian can't access that. This is a very powerful and wealthy people in Nigeria that are actually bringing it and then reselling it to sell it, the, the people who then sell it on the streets. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine that's happening in India as well, right? And so I think there's something to really consider when you're talking about those kind of environments. Now, in regards to Western nations, I think almost every gray-haired politician in Western nations are way too arrogant to see Bitcoin coming. They still think we're a joke. And I think it's the best thing that could ever happen for us because if they took Bitcoin seriously, we'd be dead in the water, <laughs> right? And they sort of still they sort of still need to look at us uh, as if we're a joke, right? Bitcoin maxis or people that are adopting Bitcoiners, they sort of need to believe that we're not a threat, right? For us to uh, continue to grow as fast as we're growing uh, to the point where too many of their, their uh, voters are... When you get to the point where too many voters have exposure to Bitcoin, and now there's nothing they can do about it. If you're anti-Bitcoin, you'll never win an election. That's where we want to be, right? Um, and so, like, you you can speak to any boomer about Bitcoin. I do it sometimes at a, at a dive bar. I have these conversations. They think I'm an idiot. <laughs> and, and that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. So that's my position on that. So I think that um, that when you said, like, we'd be dead in the water if they actually paid attention to that, I think that could scare a lot of people in the sense that the capability is there for them to shut it all down. Is that what you mean? So I want to contextualize that. There was a year where we would be, I think 2015, right? 2016, they can make life extremely difficult if you wanted to actually buy Bitcoin. Um, I think now it's just too many, there are too many players that are actually like influential. Like, so, you know, with, with Tesla now buying Bitcoin, putting it on its balance sheet, with a lot of family offices, right? Buying Bitcoin. Um, there are people that are now that are also political donors that have exposure to Bitcoin that like you couldn't, you couldn't really easily legislate against Bitcoin without it costing you politically. Mm-hmm. It depends on what state New York, you know, because of our, our banking lobby, like that's why New York is always, New York is always legislating against Bitcoin because every bank is based here. 
right? <laughs> like it's, it's it's the you know, and, and so it makes sense. The banking lobby is so huge here. But you go to Wyoming, it's pretty chill. Miami, pretty open to it, right? There are yeah. places in America where they're they're pretty. Oh, Texas, it's pretty open to, to to Bitcoin. And I think the more Bitcoin adoption happens in in those kind of environments, the more it's not politically advantageous to legislate against yeah. it. So, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Brad, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, like, there's more and more Bitcoiners getting involved in politics now. There's the Bitcoin Policy Institute, mm -hmm. Bitcoin Today Coalition, uh, Bitcoin Advocacy Group. Those are all in the U.S. That that it's like Bitcoiners getting together and trying to make make an impact in you know a multipartisan, bipartisan way to try to prevent it from being politicized and to sort of prevent the ESG left from trying to rage against proof of work and ban bitcoin or whatever so there's lots of uh there's lots of network effects there it's been great we've seen over the last year like cynthia loomis and ted cruz and um uh, i can't remember who else but there's like been some on the left as well like politicians sort of embrace bitcoin so bitcoiners are competing there which is good we're we're getting we're getting a uh, influence and as long as you have like Texas becoming like this bastion for Bitcoin freedom, I don't think you're going to see a lot of sweeping bans of Bitcoin. Um, there is, it is interesting now to see, like I couldn't have imagined 10 years ago when I got into Bitcoin in 2011, like seeing politicians like Ted Cruz making Bitcoin like their talking point and like the Heritage Foundation recently coming out and endorsing Bitcoin, like that's massive for the United States. Like that's a really strong network effect for Bitcoin to have this like place in the idea of freedom in America, to have the Heritage Foundation and these these influential folks be like, being like pulling, 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 pulling the strings or, or having us pull the strings and then get the political system to be engaged in Bitcoin. It's, it's wild to see this is where we are. And, um, in Canada, even to see Pierre Polyev being so open about Bitcoin and like taking it on the on the shoulder for Bitcoin because the price is dropping. He still hasn't like come out and said anything negative about Bitcoin. He's, he owns Bitcoin. He's been learning about Bitcoin. And in Canada, it's we're trying to do some similar things here. Like we're trying to set up a coalition of Bitcoiners to do a multipartisan education thing for senators and MPs and um, try to get Bitcoin logic and Bitcoin information out there. So we're, we're trying to follow in the footsteps of the Americans here and try to go out in front and get get politicians thinking about Bitcoin in a way that's future forward. And, you know, we have enough, we have more energy that goes over the, you know, the, the dam in Quebec than Bitcoin uses to power the whole network. So hmm. in Canada, we could have we could power the entire Bitcoin network renewable in a renewable way, but for some stupid reason they just let it they just let the power go and they don't even use it. So I mean there's lots of efforts that we can try to help um, miners or uh, oil producers in, in Alberta say like do the natural gas uh, flare gas mining instead of having methane just get vented out into the atmosphere we could be setting up these bitcoin rigs and um 
Yeah, we have lots of energy here in Canada. The United States has tons of energy. And there's yeah. a there's a real battle for proof of work versus proof of stake right now. And this is going to be the current... It is the current battle. It's just not as out, out in your face. But as it, as we go on, it's going to be more and more obvious that there is a battle for proof of work right now. And if you believe what you know, most of us believe that Bitcoin is actually useful for humanity instead of it just being like, oh, a great investment, a great store of value, a great savings account, you know, a savings vehicle. It actually can bring more freedom to the world. And there's billions of people in the world that live under financial oppression and capital controls, and they need Bitcoin. So it is worth it. I think it's one of the most important humanitarian, um, like, technologies. You know, it. There's there's so many things that you could put your weight behind as an investor or say a philanthropist or whatever, but Bitcoin combines both. Like y- y- you by by supporting Bitcoin mining, by supporting renewable mining or whatever, you're actually doing something productive for yourself and for the world. So it's like the first time that I've felt like I gotten behind a movement that actually is productive for myself and the world. Most things that yeah. you get involved with, it, it just bothers you. Like if you get involved with um, movements that you really cannot, like political movements, man, it's been it's been just so much pain. Like getting in, getting involved in these different movements through my life, and not being able to really make an effect or see anything change, has sucked. But like Bitcoin has been a great movement to be part of because we're winning (laughs) like over the years. Not only are we changing the world here, but I'm benefiting financially from it. And I'm I'm also like I'm scratching that itch of of philanthropy in a way, because I really do believe that Bitcoin is one of the most important causes that we can we can support. So, yeah, I'm I'm behind you on that one for sure. And I think like you both mentioned, there's definitely a lot of uh, change happening, a lot of optimism around, uh, you know, politicians and people supporting Bitcoin. Um, Brad, you, you mentioned like coalitions in Canada trying to, you know, educate senators and MPs and that. Are you involved in anything specific or? Yeah, there's just this like gr- a thought. No, yeah, there's this group that we're, we're, we're getting set up. There's sort of three organizations that. I'm helping to organize and we've got folks across the aisle here in Canada that are uh, all into Bitcoin and all believe the same things. Like I've got somebody that works directly for Justin Trudeau. He wrote his master's thesis in Ottawa about the Lightning Network and why cryptocurrency was all a distraction. And the Lightning Network is actually the, uh, you know, it was like this 40 page thesis that he wrote this young guy. Now he works directly for Justin Trudeau. So, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. we got him, then we've got this, uh, this other Bitcoin guy that's, um, Scott Wolf. He's, he's like a kind of progressive, um, social justice guy. He worked with the NDP and the liberals with, with, um, you know, charities around community health centers and, um, uh, financial inclusion, yeah. things like that. So it, it really is a multipartisan thing. We've also got folks like Pierre Polyev that are interested from the conservative side about using Bitcoin as a freedom technology. And um, it is multipartisan. We've got multiple things on the go. We're going to be we're going to be uh, setting up the nonprofits. I mean, actually, maybe one of them is set up already. I haven't checked in in a couple of days, but 
Yeah, we're we're making a push to try to get more Bitcoin education out there because a lot of the news organizations here in Canada are funded by the Liberal government, and they have this massive bias against Bitcoin because Pierre Polyev is supportive of Bitcoin. So they say a lot of stupid stuff like Bitcoin is a Ponzi, and you know if you had to listen yeah. to Pierre Polyev, you'd be financially ruined. And like they just they're yeah. just super ignorant. They they mix up crypto with Bitcoin. They quote Warren Buffett when they're talking about Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is rat poison, rather than talking to like yeah. Canadians like Jeff Booth, who've written so many brilliant things about Bitcoin and in a progressive light presents Bitcoin as the only alternative for like, you know, combining like a UBI type system with Bitcoin to transition us to a sound money system that actually helps the the lower class and helps solve wealth inequality, things like that, rather than engaging they're just reacting politically. So we got a lot of work to do. We got to go educate journalists. We, 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 we do have a lot of work to do. So I'm trying my best yeah. there, but I'm distracted by price drops and uh, hanging out in Clubhouse all the time with Jimmy and the guys <laughs> and uh, investing yeah. in all these Bitcoin companies. So we're, we're trying to hire somebody sure. that will kind of like take over my role there and get, get this push forward more because I'm so distracted now by just educating people about Bitcoin that it's, it's tough for me to want to engage with politics because it sucks. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I hear you on that. And uh, I think it's it's very important for sure. And maybe we can talk offline, but if there's anything I could do to assist in that, uh, be more than happy to chat for sure. Um, I have a couple of last questions. I I can't believe we're already at the time here. Uh, I feel we can keep going, but I have to uh, unfortunately pick up the kids in a bit, but I have, uh, a couple more questions, if you guys don't mind. So, and it's sort of like a two-part uh, question. So I think it's a good way to sort of sum it all up. So first of all, how do you justify the, just the volatility component of the Bitcoin? And that's sort of the narrative on the other side. It's so volatile. And so do you see it being stable at some point? And sort of what has to occur in the world for Bitcoin to be adopted and trusted as this, you know, form of currency and, and trusted, uh, you know, payment system. Uh, can I go first? Yeah. Let's say. Uh, I always tell the story. One of the wealthiest people in uh, human history, it was a West African from the Mali Empire. His name was Mansa Musa. And at the time, the Mali Empire had the largest uh, gold deposits on the planet, I mean, at least to Europeans who have already adopted, uh, Europeans and Middle Easterners who have already adopted gold as money, right? And it was still really early on. Not every single market um, within the uh, within global trade sort of transacted with gold at the time. People were still using salt. That's where the word salary comes from. People mm-hmm. were using salt and other commodities to trade. Uh, but gold was going through price discovery. And Mansa Musa was Muslim, and he was going to Mecca, right? So he was going to Mecca, and on his way to Mecca, he donated so much gold that he single-handedly crashed the value of gold by himself hmm. his ha- during his Hajj. Because <laughs> when that, an asset is going through price discovery, it does experience that kind of volatility. Once it's mass adopted, it stabilizes, right? And I always say that, tell that story, and you can look it up. Uh, it's an interesting story 
I, I just and I always just juxtapose that story with Bitcoin. That Bitcoin is really early on. Uh, a, a sizable community has adopted Bitcoin, but not a but it's not a large enough community uh, to stabilize the asset. So, but the upside is, if you buy Bitcoin now, you're buying it for really cheap uh, because when it is essentially stabilizes, right, um, it'll be worth a lot a lot of money. But it's going through the price discovery process. And for that reason, it's still volatile. It's a baby asset. Makes sense. I got to check that story for sure. But it's very relevant. Yeah, that's a great story. And it, it is relevant to like the parallels that we're at right now. Um, I think like Michael Saylor said it really well, too, when he said you can have vitality through volatility or stagnation through stability. So we it appears like mm. the dollar is stable. But really, you know, that's a stagnant thing for your net worth. If you're just saving in dollars, you're actually stagnant because you're, you're not only like, you know, potentially exposed to upside value and protecting your, you know, your savings, but you're guaranteed to lose purchasing power over the long term through dollars. So, you know, the, the, the volatility thing, I think, is kind of like it's a it's a it's a feature in a way. It does suck to see your net worth drop. So, I mean, somebody like me, whose majority of my net worth is Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot different advice than somebody who's just hedging against the devaluation and the uh, and the money supply by having like a 5% slice of their net worth in Bitcoin. For most people, they're not going to be like so convicted on Bitcoin that they're going to go like put the majority of their net worth in it. So for most people, I think the volatility is fine. I mean, as long as you preface like, hey, you know, you're going to see 50% drops guaranteed in Bitcoin, like for the next 10 years, I don't think there's anything that's going to happen aside from mass adoption and eventually a Bitcoin settling in as a global reserve asset, just like the U.S. Treasury, to get you to the point where Bitcoin won't be volatile. Um, even something as big as like Facebook, you could see recently is extremely volatile. So something that's in the trillions of market cap is still super volatile in a system where the dollar itself is 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 on this quicksand foundation and you measure we measure things in dollars but dollars are a shitty measuring stick because there's no guarantees about how much there is and, uh, you know, what's going to happen with that dollar supply. So we see these crazy volatile ups and downs in different markets based on what's going on with quantitative easing or quantitative tightening or the, you know, sanctions of a whole sovereign nation. I mean, the sanctions that the Russian sanctions were pretty much a nuclear bomb that dro got dropped on the global economy and were guaranteed to sort of like shockwave all markets because this is a new paradigm we're entering in here where, you know, the U.S. dollar has been the global reserve currency for 50 years plus ever since Bretton Woods in the 1940s. And Bretton, the Bretton Woods Agreement was when all the, uh, you know, all the countries that were engulfed in war on the allied side anyways, got together and kind of agreed to use the U S dollar as the global trade settlement currency, because the U S had the most gold and 
the idea was to peg the U.S. dollar to like $35 an ounce of gold. And uh, I think that was the price. And everybody would just use the U.S. dollar for trade. So no longer would these countries be competing with each other. We're going to enter this period of competition or uh, free market competition with with like producing things inside of the country and like in the free market, but not in we're going to take over your factories and we're going to like blockade your shipping lanes. And, you know, the, America basically provided security guarantees for the world and access to their currency, which was extremely stable because they had all the gold after the war, like all of Europe basically sent the gold to the United States and the economy in the United States was the most strongest at the time. I think it was like 75% of the world's gold had been sent to the United States. So it made sense for everybody to get together and use the U S dollar for trade. And then the, the U S uh, Navy was going to like secure all the shipping lanes and everybody would not have to worry anymore about war with each other, they would just compete in the free market and then access the United States um, to be able to sell into. Well, that worked until the 1970s. And then in, in 71, the U.S. went off the gold standard. And that was pretty much the end of Bretton Woods. Uh, well, not officially, but like it pretty much was the end. And then we entered this new paradigm for the last 50 years of they can just print as much as they want <laughs> and the money supply just keeps going up and all countries sort of competed with each other to devalue their currencies against each other. Because when you can devalue your currency by inflating the supply of your money, it makes your debt burden less onerous because your dollars are kind of like worth less. So your mm-hmm. debt, your, 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 not your dollars, your fiat currency, your currency of your country and you, it's, it's more likely that somebody will buy your goods because they're cheaper in their currency. So we've had 50 years of pretty much countries, in, at least the last 20 years, countries are basically in currency wars with each other, trying to devalue their currency without destroying their currency to make themselves more attractive. And in that paradigm, like who suffered? Well, the savers have suffered. All the people that have saved in their currency you know, we're told to pay off our debts and save your money. That's an old antiquated, like 1940s <laughs> piece of advice, like pay off your debts and save your money because money in the current system, money is debt. Like there is no fractional reserve banking. There is no base asset of money that gets put into the system to create more money. It's all banks creating money from nothing. M- money is credit. Mm-hmm. Money is debt. And of course, when your measuring stick is just debt and ever inflating supply of money, the markets are proving that it's extremely volatile. So I I look back at this book um, about what happened in, in Germany during hyperinflation called When Money Dies. And uh, we, we could see in that book, When Money Dies, the parallels between then and now are just staggering because there was extreme volatility in Forex currencies, extreme volatility in the prices of commodities. Um, you know, obviously everybody knows the stories about like dragging around wheelbarrows full of cash to go buy bread and things like that. But what not many people know about is that the period leading up to the hyperinflation um, crisis, most of the population were actually speculators, like 10% of the population had quit their jobs 
because they're making more money speculating on forex currencies and buying like supplies from farmers and just sitting on it and flipping it like that b before the currency died completely there was extreme volatility in the markets causing people to go become speculators well what have we seen over the last year and a half two years i mean people are there was a survey that i think cnbc or bloomberg did recently about six eight months ago was did did you or anybody you know quit your job to work full-time trading cryptocurrencies <laughs> and like 10% of, I think it was eight to 10% of people either did themselves or knew somebody that had been making more money trading cryptocurrencies and buying um, speculative investments than they were working. Yeah. So this is just, the volatility is a symptom of dying money. And unfortunately, it doesn't appear like at any point soon, there's going to be a reduction in volatility because it's going to be volatile to the upside and then it's going to be volatile to the downside. But if you look at it over long-term timeframes, as long as they continue the status quo, which it seems like they're going to try their best to do, which is continually increase the money supply and continue this credit-based money system where banks just issue money from nothing and they target inflation because they believe that inflation is what we need as an economy. Well, it's just going to be prices are going to keep going up. There may be volatility and like prices may come down in a recession or whatever. But based on all the things happening in the world, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any prices coming down in anything like energy and food and things like that. So Bitcoin, I think, just like in Weimar, Germany, during hyperinflation, the price of gold was going wildly up and down over this year and a half, two years period two, 300% swings from top to bottom. Like when you have a scarce resource like Bitcoin or gold, I mean, it just makes sense to allocate to it. If you can have yeah. something that is scarce and provably scarce, incredibly scarce, more and more people are going to understand that that is valuable and that the, the dollar, if it's just going to be continually inflated away, like, the money supply is going to continually increase. People will come to the realization that that's not something you want to save in. And yeah, it will be volatile. Like Jimmy said, we're on the path of, of uh, bootstrapping this thing into a global currency and it will be volatile. But over the next 10 years, I th that's why I think the best advice is like, don't think about it like you're going to watch the price of Bitcoin. If you're going to put 5% of your net worth into Bitcoin as a hedge against the debasement of the money supply, just keep saving. Don't think about it like, oh, well, I should time the top and sell it because the next 10 years could be extremely volatile and you don't want to like trade yourself out of Bitcoin. You just want to think about it as like a long-term savings vehicle. Now, if you're like majority of your net worth in Bitcoin like me, I mean, maybe you'd want to try to like maneuver the tops and bottoms over the years to try to like protect your purchasing power and buy more Bitcoin or whatever. But even that's risky, and I try my best not to do that. I try to sit on my hands because if I had just bought Bitcoin in 2011 and just sat on my hands until now, I'd be in so much of a better position than me. what I did was trying to get smart with it. I sold half my Bitcoin at 30 bucks because I put it in at 10 I got in at $10, and I was like, I just tripled my money or I doubled my money. I'm just so smart. Like I'm going to sell half my Bitcoin here. And so I sold half my Bitcoin at 30 thinking I was a smart trader and then it dropped to two. 
So I was like, ah, actually, it was smart. Uh, that was a smart move for me. I dropped it to two, two bucks. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. <sighs> yeah, I'm a good trader. I should start doing this more often. And then, you know, obviously, I made the stupid mistake of not buying back what I sold at two. I had the opportunity. But I'm like, it could go lower. <laughs> it could go lower. It was it was less than a dollar a year ago. So maybe it goes lower. And I mean, that happened to me again in the 2013 run. It went all the way up to like 1200 bucks. And I was like on Mount Gox trying to trade Bitcoin. I'm like, I got a I got a sense for the market. I, I've been in Bitcoin for years now. Like I, I got an idea. It's going to go up and then it's going to do the same thing where it's going to sell off again. So I'm going to time the tops and I'm going to buy the bottoms and I lost a bunch of Bitcoin and a, a bunch of my Bitcoin again when Mt. Gox blew up. So, I mean, I was trying to be smart. I was trying to be a trader. I was taking too much risk. So, I mean, like, look, most people are not going to beat the market. There's a lot more professional, sophisticated traders in this market manipulating things. Like, look what we see recently. Nobody thought that Bitcoin was going to get down here that was in the markets. Of course, no coiners were all like calling this a Ponzi scam, saying it was going to explode like Nouriel Rabini and Peter Schiff. I mean, really what we had was mass over leveraging and mass liquidations. Somebody's hunting, potentially somebody's hunting liquidations to get the risk out of the system, to acquire cheap Bitcoin, whatever it is, doesn't matter. The point is, most people don't profitably trade Bitcoin. Most people get wrecked trying to trade Bitcoin. So I would advise people not to try to trade it. And eventually, <laughs> I think the pain of holding will be worth it. And even myself, I wish I had just bought Bitcoin and held it. I wish I never tried to get cute yeah. with it because I'm still trying to stack back more Bitcoin to get to my original amount of Bitcoin that I had. But I mean, it's pretty it's pretty like unlikely I'll ever get back to my original Bitcoin stack selling half at 10 bucks. Um, but I do regret certain things where I've tried to be a trader and tried to time it because I was looking at it like, oh my God, this is so volatile. I have to sell and reduce exposure and diversify. So the the worst thing that people can do is diversify within crypto. If you think you're diversifying, but you're buying other cryptocurrencies, you're you're just fooling yourself. Like everything is correlated to Bitcoin. You're not diversifying if you're buying more altcoins. You're just taking leverage on Bitcoin. And if yeah, you do it in a yeah. bull market at the beginning, maybe you might get alpha over Bitcoin. You might actually catch like a, a Dogecoin or a Shiba Inu or a Solana or something like that and make a 10x over Bitcoin. But most likely you've held it down until now and you're back to like you've round tripped it and you're wrecked. So buying all coins is not diversification and diversifying outside of Bitcoin into other asset classes is also risky as we've seen like Peloton stock and Netflix and stuff. They're trading like shit coins. <laughs> they look like shit coins. <laughs> so it's really difficult to be in the position now as an, as an average entrepreneur, that's like maybe a SaaS founder or something like that. And you're like, I want to protect my profits. It's just like with, with Bitcoin, just don't, don't get cute with it. Just buy and hold your own Bitcoin Put it on a, a, a wallet, get a cold card, go to coinkite.com and get a cold card. Put it on there and just keep adding to your stack and just think about it like your savings account for a long time. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Very well said, for sure. Uh, one last question I, I do have for both you and Brad, because you did mention a couple of times, you know, Bitcoin to a million. Like, when, when do you see that happening? Um, at this rate, I, I'd say tomorrow or, uh, or next Monday, maybe. 
I mean, by the time this episode's released, maybe we're already at a million. <laughs> no, man, I don't. I I don't think it's gonna happen for a little while. I think I'm thinking like 2030. By 2030, we should be. Yeah, I mean, look, Bitcoin is either gonna be succeeding as a global reserve asset as more and more people start to understand what it is. Like we've talked about this whole time. Yeah. Or it's gonna fail. And if it fails and does not become adopted as a as an apolitical censorship resistant global reserve asset then you know it's probably gonna languish around like gold so that's why it's like five people that are using bitcoin with like five percent of their net worth you've got the potential upside of a you know 30x or whatever we are to get to a million or the potential downside of going to zero which i don't think it's ever going to go to zero but if you got 5% of your net worth in it, I mean, that 30x could be a substantial uplift in your portfolio and could change your life. But if you lose 5% of your net worth, it's not going to change your life. I mean, it may suck, but it's not materially going to like make you destitute or something like that. So, Costa, I think you described that earlier. Like you've got the a, a position in Bitcoin where if it goes to zero, it's not going to change your life negatively. It would suck, but it wouldn't be like, oh, I'm ruined. You can get by just fine. I mean, that's what I think most people should be thinking about with Bitcoin. I I do sometimes wish I had the courage to uh, recommend people go more into Bitcoin, but I don't want to get people wrecked. That's my thing. I'm like, I do I do think that like my friends and family, I think they should be like 50 percent in Bitcoin because I think the shit's going to hit the fan in the macro markets and stuff's going to be very volatile. And I, I do honestly think Bitcoin's the lifeboat and it's really what's going to keep people afloat. And it's the only like generational um, opportunity for our current generation to get life-changing gains if you hold it for 10 years. I don't think we have that in stocks or real estate or anything else. I think Bitcoins is our generation's trade. Like it's our investment. And we're going to see a, a wealth transfer from the boomers that control 70, 80% of the world's wealth down to millennials. And like, you know, what are millennials like? We like Bitcoin. So I, I do yeah. think so that this I, is an opportunity over the next 10 years to, to, to benefit from a, a, a generational wealth transfer. It's our generation's real estate. Like the boomers had stocks. You know, they got massive uplift in stocks. Um, we got Bitcoin. I like it. Jimmy, anything to add to that? I mean, my answer, when when a million dollars a coin... Uh, for me, I think the clock starts when UBI begins. And you're, I think the moment UBI begins in the United States of America, we're about seven to 10 years away from a million dollars a coin. Because that's the, that's the, that's the biggest domino. That's the biggest domino that, 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 that's going to fall. Um, and, you know, everything, you know, the reasoning why, behind why Bitcoin was created I mean, you could validate, you know, what's happening with our currency, but like that's the that'd be the elephant in the room, right? That's a, every, yeah, yeah. Every institution, like from Peter, even even the naysayers, right, that, that make their living on disparaging Bitcoin, they're gonna they're gonna be silenced when UBI begins. And what's going to begin to happen um, with regards to Bitcoin adoption, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day. Uh, Bitcoin is sort of reflective of life in a way where like the, the biggest winners are going to be the most resilient. And, and I say that because it's like 
the most successful people in, uh, you know, the most successful Bitcoin investors are the ones that uh, hold despite the downturns, hold despite the headlines, hold despite the, the course of people saying that Bitcoin is dead and they even buy more when it's down. I, I got my mother to buy Bitcoin at 55K. She's a whole coiner at 55K. And she's talking about, you know, uh, refinancing some real estate to ape in <laughs> and get more. That's, what, that's our discussion, wow. right? She's going to end up owning more Bitcoin than me. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> but she's a very resilient woman she's from haiti you know, mm-hmm. she didn't she didn't know where her next meal was coming when she was growing up right like you know she was the smartest in her class and she had no opportunity in that country the haiti produces very resilient people and so i think that's why bitcoin adoption is doing well in developing countries those are very resilient people true you know they're used to volatility and, and, and so it's very used to whole, the whole life is volatile <laughs> Like we, I'm from Haiti, bro. Our president got killed by some Colombians, bro. Like it's it's a, yeah. that's the environment we're coming from, and so we're a lot more prepared for this kind of this kind of asset class. Better prepared than Americans are, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And so yeah. I think Bitcoin is for the world. Uh, so yeah, that's my position on that. Love it, love it. Well, um, guys, thank you guys so much. I think this conversation was very important. I think we're all in alignment in the sense that. Uh, there's change happening. And I, I truly, unfortunately, believe a lot of people will be blindsided over the next decade. And hopefully conversations like this will uh, just help people position themselves better through uh, you know what's happening out there. So um, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate uh, the time. Uh, really grateful to you both. And uh, we'll definitely uh, be in touch for sure, I'm sure. Thank you. All right. All right. All the best. Thanks again. See ya.